navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Happy New Year, everybody. Great to have you joining me in this first week back. I know so many people are still catching up uh, from the uh, holidays, and uh, I'm glad that you carved out this time to meet with me to talk about medical malpractice litigation. I believe most of you have probably uh, attended uh, some of my CLEs before this one, so you know the routine. If not, just to review, I love questions. Put them all in the Q&A. I will look at them when we take a break for uh, the codes and additional ads uh, that Michelle will play later. And then um, I'll respond to some of them during this program. But I spend the first hour uh, talking and I try and save the half hour afterwards from 2 to 2.30 for the Q&A. So that's when uh, the real good stuff happens in the back and forth. But in the meantime, throw any questions as well as comments. We're all a community here, and I don't profess to know everything. I, I do not know everything. I'm here to share with you what I do know uh, and what I've learned over the last couple of decades uh, through being a personal injury attorney and handling uh, medical malpractice cases, which will be the subject of this six-part series. So uh, if you know something, if you have comments, if you have a question, throw it in the Q&A. Uh, we will get to it. And uh, before I proceed any further, uh, in addition to wishing you all a very happy and healthy new year and all the best for the year ahead, uh, I'm very excited for a great year ahead. If you are not a member of the Academy, please, please join. Uh, if you've been attending a bunch of CLEs and getting uh, benefit from it and value from it, you will autom automatically get a discount of membership. And there's lots of great benefits to joining, which you're not availing yourself of if you're not a member. So just reach out to Michelle. You can even drop something in the chat or the uh, Q&A, and she'll make sure to get you off and running. All right. So uh, we are going to talk for the next six months. Uh, first part is today that we're going to do as we have in the past, the first Wednesday of each month up until June. And uh, this is all going to be about how to litigate a medical malpractice case. And as you likely know, uh, my methodology in these presentations is to give you actual practical practitioner guidance, advice, uh, I open up my playbook. I share with you what I've done and what I have found to work uh, over the last couple of decades. And uh, if you take something good away from it, then it was worth your hour or so month that you spend listening to me. Uh, this is not going to be a high level uh, case study or law review type presentation. This is going to be what you do from the moment that call comes in to your office saying, Yes, I'd like to consult you. I think I have a medical malpractice case. All right. That call comes in, that email comes in, and that's where we're starting today of what to do when that happens. And we're going to progress over the next several months uh, talking each phase of the litigation, specifically uh, how it relates in a medical malpractice case, which is different than a regular negligence case. Most personal injury lawyers uh, feel very comfortable handling automobile accident cases, premise liability cases, 
other negligence cases where you may or may not even need an expert. Uh, it is a minority of plaintiff's personal injury lawyers who handle medical malpractice cases. And there's a reason for that. Medical malpractice cases are more complex. They are more difficult. They are fought uh, very hard by uh, the defense. The law firms who handle uh, the defense of medical malpractice cases are, have seasoned lawyers who, for the most part, all they do is defend doctors and hospitals. And so they really know the law that applies. They know the burdens. They know how to prep their clients. They know the right questions to ask. Uh, they know how to litigate these cases. So if you've never handled one of these before and you think you're going to go into taking on a medical malpractice case the same way that you would handle an auto case, uh, you're, you're in for probably a, a rude awakening. And I want to make sure that you get to a point through this program where you'll feel comfortable in taking on these cases if you so desire and making sure you don't commit legal malpractice and handling the medical malpractice cases because there are some pitfalls you have to be aware of. So. Another reason uh, many firms don't handle medical malpractice cases is because they cost more money than your typical case. Uh, in, a, in a regular accident or injury case, yes, it's expensive if you go to trial and you need to call the doctors who treat the plaintiff or the IME doctors for the defense uh, to testify, to review records, to write narratives. But in a medical malpractice case, you're gonna need at least one and often more than one expert to help you establish that there's liability in the case before you even get to additional experts for uh, talking about the damages, future care needs, life care plans, whatever may be involved in proving your damages case. So it is not uncommon in my firm where we'll spend anywhere from $20,000 to $100,000 in expenses working up and litigating a medical malpractice case. So you wanna make sure before you go down this road, uh, if you are gonna spend money and fight it hard, that you screened it properly. You don't wanna start a case on a wing and a prayer. Ooh, this sounds good. Oh, this is a big hospital, deep pockets. I'll file suit and see what happens. Unfortunately, that happens a lot. I'll have lawyers contact me to run a medical malpractice case by me, and I soon learn that they've never really handled them before. And then when I tell them that it's important that they have a good expert who specializes in that area uh, involved to uh, be willing to testify for them, they say, oh, well, this they told me it was a case, but you know they don't specialize in this specific area, and I guess I need to find someone. And it's often a little bit late for that. So I want to make sure that if you're going to take on these cases, you screen them properly from the outset, okay? Uh, and screening is super important because if you start off with a case and you go down that path and you're not ready for it and it turns out not to be a good case, you don't want to be in a situation where either you're going on a suicide mission where you're definitely going to lose a trial or you're gonna lose on summary judgment, um, or you're just gonna spend money and it not be a case, or you may not get a recovery uh, that justifies all the time and effort you put into it. Uh, I believe the statistics have been the same for the last couple of decades that most 
medical malpractice trials brought by plaintiffs that go to verdict, 80% of them are lost. And that's statewide in New York. Uh, They probably, stats have changed a little bit, but that's pretty much what we see out there. Uh, about you have about a 20% chance of winning your case at trial. Jurors are generally inclined to want to help out physicians. Uh, physicians are overwhelmingly wonderful people who are take an oath to take care of people, to treat people, to aid people. They're, you know, the front line uh, during pandemics and in the ER and all of that. And their their job is to help people. So jurors generally don't want to find against them unless they really, really feel there was uh, evidence of malpractice. And my firm, we like to say we we need to prove our case beyond a reasonable doubt in a medical malpractice case if we think we're going to have success, even though that's not the actual burden. The actual burden is as in any other civil trial, which is uh, more likely than not the burden. But um, you want to get to a point where you feel beyond a reasonable doubt, you can prove and convincingly argue ultimately to a jury um, why there was a uh, there was malpractice uh, committed uh, by either a physician or a hospital. So let's get into the initial screening, okay? And what I mean by that is what to do Uh, It's a multi-step process. So the very first process of the initial screening is when you get that inquiry, that'll either be in the form of a phone call from perhaps a referring attorney uh, or the potential client or the potential client's family member, and or it may be an email with some information, but it will be somebody reaching out to you saying, you know, I want to know if you would take on uh, my case. I think I have a good medical malpractice case. And they start to tell you what's happened to them or their client or their loved one. And in that first conversation, it's really important, or that first email exchange, it's really important to ask some key questions. This is the initial filtering out to say, is this a case I want to continue to look into? Is it going to be a waste of time? Is it likely a case? What factors initially should I consider uh, before I go to the next level of a further investigation of the case? So I want to go over a couple of the things that in my office, what we ask, we get inquiries pretty regularly, uh, if not daily, certainly weekly on potential cases of all types and on potential medical malpractice cases. So we can't start you know, chasing after every single one of them. We need to screen and see if this is one that's worth our time, worth our money uh, and our involvement uh, in the case and if we think we can be successful. So what I like to do uh, in these first uh, initial uh, interactions with a potential client is ask them specific questions. And those questions are going to cover three areas that we need to consider. Generally, in an automobile accident or, or premise case, obviously you're looking at liability and you're looking at damages. And it's the same thing in a medical malpractice case. You're looking at how strong or weak the liability is, how strong you feel there is a malpractice case uh, and what the damages are, but more so in a medical malpractice case than what is clearly uh, um, 
noticeable in an auto accident case, for example, is causation, right? So if you're crossing the street and a car hits you and you get a broken leg, there's no dispute on causation. You don't need expert testimony. But in a medical malpractice case, if they do something wrong during a surgery or if the doctor fails to timely diagnose something, you really need to focus in not only on, okay, did that cause something um, that wouldn't have happened anyway? Uh, did it cause the damages the, the potential client is complaining of? So you really have to focus on liability, causation, and damages. And I'm going to go through with you how you do that, starting with this initial phone call. So one of the first things that I like to do is I will ask the client, generally, why are they calling and why do they feel they have a case? You want to hear from them. Are they going to point out, well, I think the doctor did something wrong during my surgery? Or are they going to say, I don't know. I just, you know, I had this procedure done and I'm just not really recovering that well. You want to get a sense from the caller of what they think the malpractice was. Um, and that's the, it's an easy question. What do you think happened? What do you think was done wrong? And you'll be surprised with what you'll hear, but many times just in response to that first question, you'll see, all right, this could be a case or this definitely isn't a case. If they say, oh, you know, I, I, I was feeling sick for a week and I kept calling my doctor and my doctor said, don't worry, just drink fluids. And then a week later, I find out I had COVID and I had to start taking Paxlovid. Okay, you know, I hear that. What do you think the malpractice was? Well, they didn't know I had COVID. They should have known. You say, okay, well, you know, what do you think happened as a result of that? Well, it took me a few days to find out. And as you start peeling away the layers, you learn, listen, this is not a medical malpractice case. You can adjust the time you spend with this call and this caller accordingly and your resources accordingly, knowing at the outset, it's likely not a case. On the other hand, if you say, well, why do you think there was malpractice here? And they say, well, I went in for what I thought was going to be, you know, a repair of a fractured elbow um, and coming out of the surgery, I've had no use of my hand. I, I, I have no feeling. I have no grip. Then that's going to start getting you thinking, huh, maybe there is something here. And then you're going to continue to ask questions. So you're going to ask what they think happened. You're going to ask them, you know, what happened as a result of this? Um, how has this, you know, has this made you worse uh, than you were before uh, you went to this physician? Okay, so you want to find out, yeah, I was having this elbow surgery. I was told I'd be out the next day. I'd be fine. Nobody told me that I wouldn't be able to use my hand. And now I'm a, I'm a carpenter. I can't hold my tools. I can't work. Uh, if everything went well, my understanding was I would be uh, in a cast or a sling. I'd do some therapy and I'd be back in action with no problems. So you want to get a sense of the damages there. I'd say, oh, this could be a serious uh, heavy damages case. Carpenter, may never be able to go back to work again. So these initial questions will help you get a sense of what you're about to get into. I like to ask how old the potential client or plaintiff is. And the reason that I ask that is, uh, there's a couple of reasons. First, if it's an elderly person, if someone calls you, we often get calls, my, my grandmother, my mother's 90 years old, um, went in for a hip replacement, 
and she was able to walk fine and all that. And now she's having real issues and we think something happened in the surgery. That's going to be different than if they say, you know, my 15 year old had a sports injury and went and had surgery uh, to repair a fractured elbow. And now he can't use his hand anymore. You're going to want to get a sense because the, the damages are going to be greater on a younger plaintiff because they have a greater future life expectancy of suffering from this injury. So the future bills, the future pain and suffering, it's going to be a bigger case, a bigger damages case than someone who may be in their 90s who's already at, past, or near their statistical life expectancy, expectancy point. The other thing with asking how old the client is will help you determine whether or not there's likely other medical things going on. It's not uncommon that we will get a case to look into where something happens uh, during a surgery, let's say, or in the hospital, they're there for one thing and something else happens. And then when we look into the case, we find out, oh, this person had, you know, uh, numerous bypass surgeries. Um, they had um, AIDS they were taking medication for. Um, they had COPD, breathing problems. Uh, they were on dialysis. Um, so when someone's older, there's they've lived longer life. There's a chance they've had other what in the medical profession is called comorbidities, other issues, other medical issues that could cause or add to a bad outcome. And it may not be too easy to separate. Well, was it the, something in the hospital or did this person just have a bad heart? Right. Um, were they not monitoring them properly or could this have happened even if they were, you know, everything was looking fine because of these prior problems. So I like to find out what age we're dealing with. The other thing is if you're dealing with an elderly person. Um, and frankly, anyone over 65, which I don't think is elderly, but that's when Medicare kicks in, Medicare will have a lien automatically against the case by statute. So what that means is if you have someone on Medicare who's been in the hospital for two months and they believe it's malpractice, um, there's a really good chance you're going to have a monster of a lien to deal with, potentially well into the six figures. I've seen seven figure liens. And you need to know whether you're dealing with Medicare and whether there's a statutory lien. Because if in your assessment of the potential damages, the case is only maybe worth on its best day $200,000, and then there's a $200,000 lien, you do the math, you realize it's just it's not going to be worth bringing the case. And uh, I'll get calls from people and they'll say, you know, I, I spoke to another lawyer. They said, I'm too old. It's not worth it. I'm too old for them to bring the case. And with no further explanation and potential clients don't like to hear that. No one wants to hear that their age uh, creates an obstacle to justice. But when you explain it to them and say, listen, here's why um, it would be very difficult, even if we were to win your case and prove all this and spend all the money after our expenses in the lien, it would lead you in nothing. So um, as I always say, inform your clients. And that's part of it. It starts with potential clients. All right. So find out how old the potential client is. I like to find out the venue. Where did this take place? Was the surgery in the Bronx? Was the surgery in Nassau County? And the reason you want and where does the uh, where does the potential client live? Are they in Westchester and did they treat with a physician in Westchester? Uh, if you start to see that it's in an unfriendly venue, there are unfriendly venues 
especially for medical malpractice cases, uh, such as Nassau County and Westchester County and Staten Island, uh, where it's the, st the statistics are probably 90 to 95% of those cases uh, you lose if you're a plaintiff in those venues. So unless it's a really, really strong case, do you want to take that on knowing you're going to spend this time and money uh, in a really bad venue? Okay, so that's always a good question to ask. Then you, it's good to find out, well, why were they seeing this doctor to begin with? Why were they at the hospital to begin with? Um, the best uh, malpractice cases to litigate are where there's, where there's clearly something that happens that is a damage that is really unrelated to what any reasonable person would expect when they go in for that treatment or procedure. For example, I'm going to talk with you throughout this program over the next several months about a case I recently resolved, but it involved um, a man in his 30s who went in for arthroscopic knee surgery to repair a tear. Um, during the surgery, and towards the end of surgery, he ran into anesthesia problems. They couldn't get his lungs working back. He ended up in the ICU for a week, and he ended up dying uh, after being in the ICU for a week. So in that instance, I'm saying, look, you know, if someone goes in to have their knee operated on, maybe there's a problem with the surgery, maybe it doesn't go as well, maybe there's some recovery issues, but you don't expect to die. You don't expect to, you don't expect to spend a week in ICU because of some type of complication. Um, on the other hand, if they say, yeah, I was in the hospital for dialysis, I have to go every week, um, and it turns out they're complaining of some type of kidney issue. I never had this before until I went in on this visit. My dialysis was always fine, but now things seem worse. That's going to be a much more difficult case because then you're, you're going to have to say, well, what's related to the underlying kidney issue that the potential client may or may not have uh, suffered from absent malpractice? And what can you attribute to any actual malpractice? Sometimes it's not so easy. It's harder to parse out, okay, the damages and the causation. So it's really important to find out, well, why were they there? Why did they see this doctor? Why were they in the hospital? And then what happened? Uh, the best way to evaluate these cases is to have a real good before and after picture. So that way you can see if things are going smoothly across, maybe they hit a little bump when the alleged malpractice occurs and they stay right on. Or do they go in and the malpractice occurs and then it goes really bad? Um, so these initial questions, which don't take that long, are really helpful in the process of the initial screening. And then, again, do the damages seem out of whack and out of place with the procedure or the process or treatment that the client was undergoing? That's always a really clear sign of a potential departure. And I'm going to give you an example. Let's say um, someone has a fractured elbow and they go in for surgery to repair the fracture on their elbow. Now, if they come out of that surgery and they have some weakness in their hand and it seems to be getting a little better, they're not sure. I'm hearing that in that initial screening. And when I hear that, I say, well, that's probably a risk. They're in there 
in the elbow. There's nerves there that bring control and sensation and function to the hand and the wrist. It's not uncommon. It is a risk in any surgery of causing perhaps some trauma to the nearby nerves and muscles. It often comes back. Uh, when did the surgery happen? How long has it been there? That may not be so clear. That's something that, all right, we're going to need to look in a little bit further. But what did they said? I went in for an elbow fracture surgery. Apparently there were problems. They, they, they brought me back in for two more surgeries. They couldn't get things right. And next thing you know, after a month in the hospital, I had to have my, my lower arm amputated, right? Then of course your radar goes up. That doesn't sound like a known complication. All right. So again, find out why they went in, what the damages are. That's going to help you in your assessment. Also, just because malpractice may have occurred, it's really important to know that that does not mean that there is a viable case to bring. And that's something that many lawyers and many patients and potential plaintiffs um, don't get, and they're not clear on And I'm going to give you an example of this. You get a call from someone and they say, I was hit by a car crossing the street. My leg was hurting like crazy. I couldn't put weight on it. I went to the emergency room. They did an x-ray. They told me there's no fractures, uh, that it's just bruising and I should be okay. And to take some Advil and get some bed rest and follow up with my doctor. The week went by, I put my foot up. I was in unbearable pain. It didn't get better. So I went to an orthopedic surgeon at his office or her office. And they took x-rays and they said, oh, yeah, you got a fracture going right through, you know, your tibia right here. And uh, you're going to need surgery on this. We're going to schedule you for the operating room later this week and we're going to operate on you. All right. And then you the patient says, I asked my doctor, but I went to the emergency room. They did x-rays of my leg and they said there's no fracture. Why is it you're seeing a fracture? And begrudgingly, the doctor will probably say, oh, they miss things sometimes, but trust me, I see it, it's there. Oh, well, that's malpractice, right? It's malpractice. If a radiologist does an x-ray of a leg that shows a fracture and the radiologist fails to diagnose and see the fracture and tell the patient they have a fracture, that's definitely malpractice, okay? But, but is that enough? So what? What are the damages? Isn't it likely that even if they saw that it was a fracture, that they would cast the leg, maybe a soft cast, and say, follow up with an orthopedic surgeon? And oftentimes, they'll wait for swelling to go down. They book the OR. The surgery takes probably a week to have the surgery anyway. And the surgery is going to be the same, whether they diagnose that fracture when you went to the ER or a week later when it was diagnosed. So it's really no harm, no foul. And then I'll explain that to a caller and they'll say, but it's malpractice. They, you mean to tell me they don't owe me anything for that? They can just get away with it? And the answer is yes. Ultimately, that's what happens. Well, can't we send a letter? What if we send a claim letter to the hospital and we highlight what happened? They're going to want to do something, right? They're going to settle my case. They're going to offer me some money. And I say, no, they're not. <laughs> And they look at me like they have two heads. Lawyers look at me. Maybe some of you are saying, are you crazy? Um, because what will happen is in any medical malpractice case against physicians, against hospitals, once you send that claim letter, that gets handed over to their insurance carrier. The insurance carrier 
All they do is write insurance for physicians and hospitals. It's not like they're an auto carrier that happens to cover doctors as well. This is their wheelhouse. And they're going to say what I just said. They're going to say, whatever, it's no harm, no foul. Even if they sue us, they're not going to show causation. There's no provable damages. It's a zero case. Okay. And they're not going to offer you anything. So just because malpractice does occur, doesn't mean it's a case, okay? And that's something that you need to know as well. Don't get excited just because you think you've got something unless you can also prove causation and damages. Same thing in a failure to timely diagnose a condition, okay? Depending on how much time went by, yeah, it may be a failure to diagnose. We see this in uh, breast cancer cases where the mammogram's not read properly and they should have seen a, a tumor uh, and should have jumped on it as far as um, testing it, biopsy, treatment options, and then six months goes by. And then the next mammography, uh, it's picked up and then the client finds out they have cancer, they undergo treatment. Well, we often feel pretty good about showing they missed it uh, and committed malpractice and failing to timely diagnose the tumor. But the real battle is, did that six months make a difference? Did it make a difference? Uh, the patient ends up having a, a double mastectomy. And the argument would be, well, they wouldn't have had to have a double mastectomy if it was caught six months earlier. Well, studies show that many patients now have mastectomies and often double mastectomies, even when it's caught timely as a, a preventative measure from future issues. Um, sometimes it's hard to say how fast it's growing or slow and whether the treatment or the damages would be any different. So the battle moves from liability to causation and then damages, okay? Well, what are the damages? Well, she had to have uh, both of her breasts removed. Well, if they caught it in time, would she have had both breasts removed as well? What's the argument there? And then it becomes more fact-based on your particular client and the type of cancer and how aggressive and what the doctors have to say. So again, the point of all of this is to remind you that just because there is a clear finding of a malpractice or a departure doesn't mean that it's a case that you should take on, okay? So you wanna give this initial screening a hard look. If you ask these questions that I've suggested either in the first email, first phone call, that's gonna give you a heads up as to whether this is a clear no or whether it's a possible yes, okay? And you really wanna take the time to look into it because you're gonna be spending money and you're really not gonna get these cases resolved with a claim letter. I have to tell you, I've been asked that many times by lawyers and clients, well, you're saying I won't win a trial, but what if we send a claim letter? Maybe that'll work. And you know what? On this case that I'll be talking to you about where the person died following uh, what should have been an outpatient knee surgery, um, I had four experts on board and looking at that case before I even filed suit. I had my theories uh, and I put very detailed claim letters to the facilities and potential defendants. And I spelled out my theories. I said, we've had it reviewed. This is what we're seeing. We'd like to know if you're open to a pre-litigation mediation, discussion, anything. And they basically told me to go fly. Uh, first, they said, well, we're open to it. They'll, they'll drag you around or along for a little while and say, let us review it. Thank you for the letter. Uh, send us some medicals. We'll look at it. 
A month goes by, yeah, we're still looking at it. Two months goes by, oh yeah, we're looking at it. Oh, do you have a demand? We need a demand. You give them a demand and then, all right, thank you. We'll look at it. And then after they're delaying three, four months, they say, yeah, you know, we had it reviewed and we just don't see any departures on our end. So, you know, we're not looking to resolve this case or mediate it. And then you've lost four months from initiating the litigation and moving forward with, with what you think is a viable case. Um, that is most likely what's going to happen. That's what I've seen happen. It is extremely, extremely rare to resolve a case without going into litigation. There are some hospitals, some carriers that may be open to it. Maybe you have a special relationship with an adversary uh, where you can cut to the chase sooner rather than later. But for the most part, you need to be ready that if you're taking this case on, it's going into litigation and it's gonna cost you money. If you are joining us via podcast, the first attendance verification code for today's course is P-O-D, Two three three. Again, that's P O D two three three. All right. I still have a one more thing that I, two more things uh, that you really want to feel out during that initial inquiry. You really want to get a sense of the damages. You know what's happened since then. Is the person employed? Is it keeping them from their employment because of this uh, malpractice? Um, you know, how long were they hospitalized for? Have they had treatment? Are they still in treatment? So you want to get an idea of the after picture, uh, and that'll help you assess whether or not it's a case worth taking on. Because at the end of the day, folks, it's going to be a business decision. Um, we are in the practice of law, but we run businesses. Uh, we do it to get compensation for our client, and that's how we earn a living as well. And you're not doing anybody any favors if you take on a case only to spend all of your time and your money, uh, which is not going to be uh, a small ticket item, uh, in years uh, to litigate something, unless there's going to be sufficient damages to compensate the client, cover your expenses and your legal fee, and pay the liens. So that's why you really need to make sure that the damages are substantial, at least into the six figures, uh, if you're going to take a case on. And um, you know you don't want to take a med mal case on for less than six figures, uh, because ultimately it won't be feasible financially uh, after fees and expert costs and all of that. It doesn't mean that you get into a case, that case looks good, and you end up settling it for less than $100,000. That can happen. But if you're smart and you realize the case is going downhill as you get further into it, you get out. You try and get a settlement going, try and get what you can, and you get out and you settle the case, or you advise the client early on and let them take their case elsewhere. Because sometimes cases do start off looking strong, uh, you get good reviews, you get experts on board, but then things come out in discovery that sort of explain and justify some of the actions taken by the physician or at the hospital that weren't known until you took their deposition, for example. Um, I had a case once where we got a positive review and, uh, and I worked it up and I was pretty sure I had a similar case and I knew what went on. And while I was questioning the physician, and we'll get into depositions uh, in, uh, in a few months, but uh, I'm questioning the physician, the surgeon, and I really liked the surgeon. His answers were all very clear. They made sense. Uh, and he explained something that wasn't apparent in the records, which is what he thought caused this ultimate injury. 
And afterwards, I was like, wow, uh, that didn't go as I thought it would. I reach out to my expert. I give my expert the transcript. And my expert says, yeah, the way he explains it, this wasn't clear in the records. This makes sense. And I think it's going to make it very hard to show there was a departure. So in that case, uh, I told the client, the client was very unhappy. She happened to be a pretty intense person to begin with, out for blood. And I said, listen, I hate to tell you this, but we don't think there's a case anymore. And this is why. She yelled and screamed. And I said, you can go to another firm. Uh, I'm happy to work with them. I'm not going to hold your file back or ask for a lien. And, and the other firm contacted me. I told them why we weren't taking it uh, further. And they said, all right, well, we think we have an expert who really likes the case. We're going to take it. And I tracked it and they took it and they had to go to trial. No offers were made and it was a defense verdict. So I, I took um, at least, I wouldn't say pleasure by any means, but I was pleased that I made the right decision and I made the right call. And uh, you need to do that. You need to constantly assess these cases as they go on because it's not always clear at the outset. The last thing I like to ask uh, is um, when did the malpractice occur? Okay. Statute of limitations in a medical malpractice is different than the statute of limitations in other negligence cases. And each state is different. So I'm going to tell you what it is in New York State, because primarily that's where you all are, uh, who are attending this uh, webinar and listen to the podcast. But if you're not in New York State, you're going to want to do a quick uh, Google search on the statute of limitations in your state, because more likely than not, it is a shorter period of time to bring the case than in another type of negligence case. So in New York, Regular negligence cases, automobile accidents, premise accidents, that type is three years from the date of accident to bring the lawsuit. In a medical malpractice case, it is two years and six months, two and a half years from the date of malpractice. Okay. Sometimes that's easy to find that date. If something went wrong in a surgery, it's two and a half years from the date of surgery. Sometimes if it's a failure to diagnose and, uh, We've had a case where the client was treating with the primary care physician every couple of months, would show up, not feeling well, have a cough. Well, lo and behold, after a year or so, uh, the plaintiff was diagnosed with lung cancer. So we had to look back at the records and try and figure out generally when it should have been picked up, when it should have been diagnosed. And that becomes the on or about date of treatment that you work with. There is something called continuous treatment. Uh, the way that that works is, let's say you go to a doctor uh, to treat you for, uh, to do a, a surgery on your knee, and you're having problems with the knee, and you keep going back to that same doctor, and the doctor's treating you, but not really doing much, and this is going on for another six months after the surgery, every month you're in touch with the doctor, complaining about the knee, and then finally you go for a second opinion, and you find out that there was malpractice and um, and that's why you're still having problems with the knee. So the, to be safe, you wanna look at the date of the surgery. I always do that. You make it shorter to be safe. You don't wanna run into problems, but generally the way that would work is the statute would be start to run from the last date of treatment from the same provider for the same condition. So if you went back to that orthopedist a year later because of complaints of your wrist, that's not going to uh, extend the start date uh, for the statute of limitations. So what I like to do when I'm screening a case 
is be as cautious as possible. I never want to jump into a medical malpractice case when the statute's about to expire. So even if I think there's an argument for continuous treatment, if the two and a half years looks like it's run already, I'll tell the client, listen, we can make this argument, but you need to know, and I put it in writing, that the statute from the date has already expired. Uh, we can try and do this under the continuous treatment, but they may push back. Uh, you want to give full uh, full uh, consent, informed consent to your clients so they know um, that you're not dropping the ball uh, and that if they hand you the ball already with problems or delays with the statute, you're aware of that. I've gotten many calls where uh, the caller says, oh my God, I'm freaking out. Um, I went in for surgery a couple of years ago and I just learned that it's two and a half years. I thought I had three and my statute's expiring next week. Can you take on the case? It's very rare that I'll take on that case. The reason is, as we'll get into, is part of the screening. Today we're talking initial screening. Part two, which starts next month on February 1st, we're going to talk about once you have the case and you're working with an expert to review it before filing a lawsuit, um, it takes time. Uh, I never in any case want to just do a placeholder or just file a, a, a summons and complaint. I might do that for a family member or someone, but I'm never just filing a summons and complaint because then you're on the hook. And if you don't name the right parties and you've left somebody out and you filed the complaint and you left out this doctor or this hospital or you put in the wrong causes of action, you're going to be on the hook for malpractice. So as hard as it is sometimes to turn away a case, uh, find out when the treatment was. And that question should generally be asked pretty early on because if they call you up and they say, well, I had surgery five years ago. And then you say, well, when's the last time you saw the surgeon? And they say, oh, probably a month after the surgery. Then you say, listen, you know, there's what's called the statute of limitations. And then your conversation probably doesn't have to go much farther than that. Okay. So make sure you, you get that information relatively early, uh, the date of treatment, the date of all of this, because many people will wait. They'll wait until the statute's about to expire and hand you a hot potato at the last minute, uh, or they'll wait beyond the expiration. They didn't know about the statute of limitations or that there even was one. All they know is they were told to call you um, when, they, when they were looking for a lawyer about what happened, okay? So statute's really important. The other thing is you wanna ask who the defendant is, not only for purposes of venue to know where the defendant is, but if it is a municipal hospital, so here in New York City, we have the New York City Health and Hospitals system, which many hospitals uh, are owned and operated by the city of New York. One example of that is Bellevue Hospital is a city hospital. Um, Westchester County Medical Center is owned and operated by New York State. So these facilities require a notice of claim, just like any other city case or state case. You have to timely file a notice of claim within 90 days of the malpractice, and then you have to file suit within a year and a half, okay? So you need to know, you don't wanna take on a lawsuit against Bellevue uh, at the two year mark if no notice of claim has been filed and all lawsuit has been filed thinking you have two and a half years, all right? So you need to find out who you're dealing with, what the timelines are uh, that you're working with. So, you know, give yourself a buffer. I like to give myself at least two months 
at least two months um, to take on and review a case before I would consider uh, taking it on if the statute's about to expire. So if you're coming at me less than two months, even at two months, I'm real nervous, especially if you're heading into holidays or or summertime, because don't forget, it's not just you who has work to do. You have to get the right experts. You have to make sure they're available. They get what you need in time. Uh, you have all the records you need to review. That can take some time. So find out who the players are. Know what your statute of limitations are, okay? Then that should, for the most part, give you enough in that initial discussion without having looked at anything. If you ask the questions that I just went over, that will give you a sense of whether or not you're going to want to do one of three things. In my firm, we basically have three outcomes as a result of these initial inquiries. The first is reject. We know it's not a case. The statute's expired. There are no damages. There doesn't appear to be any malpractice, whatever it may be. As a result of this screening, this just isn't a case we're going to take. It's a reject, uh, and we will often just tell them that on the phone. We're really sorry. We explain the statute of limitations or whatever it may be. Always advise people that you're rejecting to get a second opinion. Uh, let them know what the statute is. So reject, that's option number one. Option number two is sign up. We want this case. This is a situation where someone goes in for knee surgery and ends up dying. You know it's a case worth looking into, especially if it's a young person with young children who is working, who passed away. Potential big damage case, uh, and, uh, and you know it's something you want to look into, and you know you'd like this case if it does turn out to be one, and you're willing to take a chance on spending money for records and experts uh, without having the records yet to review, we sign that up. So we'll proceed with the next steps of getting a retainer agreement out to our client, potential client, so that we can officially get working on their case. That brings me to retainer agreement before I go to option number three. So once you decide you want to look into this case or you want to move forward on the case, um, you the proper way to practice is to get a signed retainer. We do not spend money on a case. It is rare if we do. But we do not spend money on a case unless we have a signed retainer, unless the client has retained us. When you're speaking with the inquiry and it's a case you're interested in, you have to say, do you have your medical records? And sometimes they will have their medical records because you're not going to be able to, and you need to tell the potential client, you're not going to be able to tell them whether or not you think they have a viable case and whether or not you're going to take the case until you can look at the, the relevant medical records. Some clients have everything and they'll send it to you. They'll email it Dropbox. Some say I have some, but not all. And they can send you what they have and they're working on getting others. Some have no records at all. And the ones that have no records, if they ask you and they say, well, I don't really know how to get them. Can you get them for me? I suggest you say as a firm, we don't do that unless we believe there's merit to your case already. Um, and generally that's a decision that's made after looking at some records. So the onus is on you. I'll tell you how to do it. I'll tell you who to call, how you get your records that they can charge you, how the process works, but you need to get the records. Okay. And the reason for that is if I get 10 calls in a week on potential medical malpractice cases, I say, sure, we'll get the records for you. And I'm not retained and I'm not sure if I'm going to get the case. Then I'm sending letters requesting things for uh, on a case where I don't 
I'm not really authorized to. I don't have a signed retainer. And then I'm spending money. Records themselves can cost over $1,000 uh, for long hospital stays. So I'm not writing checks for people if I have no idea whether or not they have a case. So you need to explain to them that the onus is on them and that they need to get the records. And once they have the records, then you will review them. Okay, but first they need to sign a retainer if you decide right away you want to sign them up. And let's just take a quick look at what a retainer agreement looks like because it is different than a regular negligence retainer agreement. So I'm going to share my screen with you now. And if it's not showing the retainer agreement, someone let me know, but it looks like it is. And this is a sample. It's in the materials. It's on, uh, I think it's page um I have the page, I'll tell you in a moment when I close my screen share, but it's in your materials, you can use it. And the biggest difference between a medical malpractice retainer agreement in New York state, as opposed to uh, what I'll call regular negligence is the fee structure. So this is what's called a medical malpractice sliding scale. So instead of a one third recovery, as in most negligence cases, in New York state by statute, you must go by the sliding scale, which is 30% of the first 250, 25% of the next 250, and so on until anything over 1.25 is 10%. Also, you'll note there's no option one and option two. You may recall several years ago in New York, we were required in a negligence retainer to give clients this option, option one, option two, do you wanna take the expenses? Do you want us to do it? In the MedMal retainer, we pay for the expenses, the expenses come off the top, and then our fee is determined on the sliding scale with the balance to the client. This ends up putting less money into the attorney's pocket and more into the client's pocket. This was done as a part of tort reform many, many years ago, uh, where the legislature thought if they cut down on the attorney's fee, the attorneys will be less likely to take these cases on. And the way it works, and I see we're running tight against time, so I'll continue into the next half hour in a moment. I'll wrap up the retainer and let Michelle do her thing. But what will happen is, let's say you settle a case for $2 million, a medical malpractice case. You're going to get out your pen and your calculator, and you're going to figure out 30% of 250000 is $75,000. That's your first part of the fee. 25% of the next two fifty dollars is 62500 I know this because I've done it. 20% of the next 500 is 100,000. And so your fees start to add up. Then once you get above 1.25, the balance from 1.25 up to 2 million, that's $750,000, you only get 10%. You're getting $75,000 fee on that additional $750,000. Hopefully a few of your jaws are dropping because it's extremely unjust. And it frankly puts lawyers and their clients in a conflict where you're trying to get them as much as possible. But for each million, if you're only making another 100,000 for each 200,000, you're making 20,000. Is it worth it to go to trial over that? You know, you have to have these conversations. But anyway, that's the retainer. Feel free to use it. Michelle, turn over in the last minute so you can um, wrap up what you need to do. And then I'll wrap up and then get into the Q&A. If you're joining us via podcast, the second attendance verification code for today's course is POD142. Again, that's POD142. All right, great. Um, so just to sort of wrap up before we get into the Q&A, and please, if you have the time, it's a half hour, I'll, I'll hit on every question and a lot of the good stuff happens in the Q&A part. 
But let's say you decide to sign it up. All right. Based on that call, we want it. We're signing it up. You get the retainer, you get them to sign it, you sign it up, and then immediately you have all the HIP authorizations form signed, get all of the records. If you don't sign it up, then the most likely what happens in our office and may happen in many of yours, most likely what's going to happen is it's going to be what we call a get back. I explained everything to the client. They're going to get the records and they're going to get back to us. We follow up with them, send them an email, a letter. It was great to meet with you as we discussed in order to further evaluate your case. Please get back to us with the medical records that we discussed. And that's a get back. Now, sometimes they disappear. They don't want to get the records. They're not that into the case. But oftentimes they will work very hard to get the records. They may ask you for guidance on how to get them. And uh, you can work with them or a referring attorney will get the records. Uh, but the key is you need to get the records. Um, and that's what we call a get back. Once we get the records, we will do our own internal evaluation. Now, I've been practicing for about 26 years now. Our firm's been around for 55 years. Um, we've got medical records on all of our desks. We've all gotten used to reviewing records. We know what to look for. You generally want to try and get it. It's a, it's a story that you need to put together. You want a chronology. How are they doing this year and then the next year? And then when did it get worse? You want to find out what was going on before the alleged malpractice. Then you want to, so you want to look at prior records. Then you want to see the records from that admission or that surgery or what happened then and there to cause the malpractice and see what you can learn in the records, what notes are made, what explanations are given, if anything. In the operative report, does it say, I, uh, I transected it and repaired it? I mean, you need to look at what happened. And then you're going to want to see all the records afterwards. Do the patient need to treat? Maybe it was one of those situations where no harm, no foul. There may have been malpractice. But you say to the client, listen, you know, you haven't needed treatment. You haven't seen a doctor in three years. You know, there's really no damages or they've had a ton of treatment. And you may have subsequent treating doctors comment on the um, on the care rendered. They may have said sustained an iatrogenic injury during surgery. Keep a lookout for the word iatrogenic. I-A-T-R-O-G-E-N-I-C. That means physician caused. So if they sustain an iatrogenic injury during a surgery, it's a physician-caused injury. All right. So you have to get all the records. You can review them in-house first. Some firms, bigger firms or firms that solely do medical malpractice may have nurses or doctors on staff to review them. Um, but it's always good to create a chronology, figure out if you have all the records, if there's reference to other doctors or other treatment and you don't see it. Once you have all the records and you've reviewed it, Generally, you will get a sense of whether or not you think there's a case and or you think there's nothing there. And at that point, you make the decision of either reject it, accept it, keep it or further look into it. Um, if we are not sure, but we think it could go either way and it's a big damages case, we'll get an expert to review it or a medical review service. We'll talk about this next month. Um, if we look at it and we're like, yeah, this definitely looks like a case. All right, I'll speak with my partners. We'll talk about it. All right, we need to get an expert on board. Do we need one expert on liability? Do we need one on causation? What type of expert do we need? Do we have one? Do we need to find one? Let's get the expert. And we make sure that we have the expert on board 
giving us a positive review before we file the lawsuit. Not only is that good practice to make sure that you have your expert lined up and ready to go to bat for you and help you out throughout the litigation, which we'll talk about how to work with your expert throughout the litigation, but it's also required in most states and certainly in New York State, when you file a medical malpractice lawsuit, you have to file a certificate of merit saying that you've had a, a, a licensed medical uh, provider review it and determine that there is merit to proceed with the case. Okay, that's what we're going to talk about next month will be on February 1st, part two. And I'm going to talk about finding experts, which experts working with the experts to build your case to make it as strong as possible as you move forward. So that's going to be next Monday on February 1st. Okay, so that sort of touches on, oh, there's one more thing that I wanted to share with you. Um, bear with me in the materials. Um, I have, I just want to let you know where the retainer is. I'm going to refer to the PDF pages of the material. So PDF page 12 is the retainer agreement. If you want to look at that or use it or copy parts of it. And then I've also included in the materials, if you're really new to this area of medical malpractice litigation, or you want a refresher, I highly recommend that you look at the pattern jury instructions. You know, I talk about the PJI all the time. It's the law that's ultimately charged to the jury. You want to make sure you know it. The PGI is annotated, meaning they'll have cases, they'll have sites, treatises that they refer to. They give you the charges and the law. So at page 14 of my materials, I include the full charge and all the annotations for physician negligence and physician malpractice. And that's PGI 2 colon 150. It's worth a read. You want to see what a, jur a jury is charged. You're going to want to mimic the wording in the PJI, um, in your pleadings, in what you argue to counsel, in your questionings, what you argue to the jury. For example, are you going to argue that it was the doctor committed negligence? Are you going to say they departed from good and accepted practice? Are you going to say they deviated from the standard of care? These are all accurate ways to define when a physician commits malpractice, but what does the charge say? And the charge, I'm going to read it to you, it'll take two seconds. The actual charge says as follows, malpractice is professional negligence and medical malpractice is the negligence of a doctor. Negligence is the failure to use reasonable care under the circumstances, doing something that a reasonably prudent doctor would not do under the circumstances, or failing to do something that a reasonably prudent doctor would do under these circumstances. It is a deviation or departure from accepted practice. It is a deviation or departure from accepted practice. So now that we know that, you're going to want to plead that defendant so-and-so deviated from accepted practice in failing to or departed from accepted practice. You're going to want to argue in your opening statement, we will prove or we will show you that, depending on which side, that there was no deviation from accepted practice or departure from accepted practice. They don't talk about standard of care in this charge. So I would use 
from accepted practice as opposed to standard of care as the phraseology. So I highly recommend looking through this PJI. That's why I put it in the materials. It's a good jumping off point also if you really want to learn and, and get into litigating uh, a medical malpractice case. So these are my thoughts for the initial screening of a case to get you thinking the right way and off on the right foot. I'm going to look at the Q&A now and try to... Um, and uh, look at some. And the first thing I'm going to see is I see Vito Canavo, who uh, knows a lot more than I do about everything in personal injury law. So, Vito, thanks for uh, joining uh, this webinar. And uh, Vito uh, says uh, he's clarifying something for us that Bellevue is not the city of New York, but the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation, two separate entities. City of City of New York is not the proper party. Also, the statute of limitation against the New York City Health and Hospital Corporation is a year and 90 days, not one and a half years. And that is not for the wrongful death case, which is two years from death. Vito, thank you for that. Uh, I definitely misspoke about uh, it being a year and a half. It is a year and 90 days as in any other city case. So it's 90 days to file a notice of claim and then a year and 90 days to bring the action. That's in any case against the city, a negligence case, as well as a medical malpractice case. Disregard what I said about the year and a half. There is no year and a half statute that I'm aware of for anything in New York. I misspoke. Also correct is in the complaint, you are not naming the city of New York. You are naming specifically the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation. Vito, thank you for pointing that out. Um, and if you see the word iatrogenic in a record, smile. I have not seen it used in a while. Um, yeah, I've, I've been fortunate to see that a bunch of times. And it's wonderful when you start asking a doctor during a deposition, why did you put the word iatrogenic in your record and see them swarm about it and say, well, it just means that it was while I was working on them. It doesn't mean that it wasn't. It was a, it's a complication. That doesn't mean malpractice. So uh, you, you see a lot of that. So, Vito, thanks so much for your feedback. And hopefully you'll stay with me uh, through the um, regular parts and keep me in check when I say the wrong things, which will likely happen. All right, I'm going to start back with some other questions here. Alice is saying, um, have I successfully litted any cases against a medical facility with claims arising during the pandemic? that would ordinarily be barred by the immunity statutes. I was recently approached to represent the estate of a decedent who sustained severe bed sores while under the care in a rehab, ultimately determined the firm could not take it on based on the immunity. I currently, I don't think our office is litigating any cases that um, arose during the pandemic. Um, you have to look at the statute. It's very strict. You have to show egregious behavior, really unrelated to COVID. Um, so we haven't. Uh, it'll be interesting. I think now we're going to start to see some of these cases have been brought against hospitals and medical facilities. And the defense is going to push back and say that they're, they're immune based on the governor's statute. There's going to be some issues on timing because even the plaintiff's bar, we all weren't really sure what was told, what wasn't told, um, when it accrues or not. So it'll be really interesting. I would imagine pretty soon, if not already, uh, we're going to see a body of law uh, develop on on these areas. So that's that's where we're at, Alice. I think it's it's tough. It's a high bar. But if you think it's a really strong case and the malpractice was egregious, it may be worth fighting that fight and seeing where you go. 
Um, Patricia's asking if I have experience with dental malpractice cases. Do I think the carriers would be equally resistant to pre-litigation resolution in dental? <laughs> so that's a great question, and I do have experience. I'm going to just tell you a brief story that explains this. Probably about 20 years ago, one of my earlier trials was a dental malpractice case uh, where a dentist put implants into the lower jaw of a, of a client of ours. She had a tooth extracted and an implant put in. Well, the implant went into what's called the inferior alveolar nerve. There's a nerve that runs in a, in a canal uh, right through the jawline, one on each side. And on an x-ray, you don't see the nerve, but you can see the canal like a, like a little tunnel that it sits in. And if you hit that nerve, that nerve gives sensation to the lip and the chin. And if you hit it on one side, literally right down the middle on that side that it's traumatized, you're going to have a numb lip and a numb chin area. And it was a no pay case. We said it was malpractice. They said it's a risk of the procedure. You can hit the nerve. So I won the case. I got a really good verdict in New York County, a big verdict. We ended up settling it afterwards. It was the verdict was bigger than the value of the case, but it generated a lot of business for me on these nerve injury cases. And being young and full of uh, vinegar, I was ready to take them all on. So I started getting all these cases in and um, no pay, no pay, no pay, no pay. I, I pretty much had to try almost all of them. Uh, and especially that's the case with oral surgeons. Uh, I can do a whole CLE on this, maybe I will, but there's an insurance company that writes for oral surgeons. Their board is made up of oral surgeons and they take it as a personal offense if you bring a lawsuit against someone who's an oral surgeon and they will fight them. I had cases where a young man went in and had a lingual nerve cut in half, a lingual nerve cut in half. They're both transected. We had proof of it from a subsequent surgery. I begged them to settle, no pay the whole way. It was a New Jersey case. I ended up getting admitted pro hoc vice because I'm not a New Jersey lawyer. I had to try the case. I was begging them to settle. They wouldn't offer me a dime. I still think these cases are a flip of the coin. It's either a risk or it's malpractice. Depends where the jury comes out on it. I tried the case. New Jersey, you can't even ask for a sum of money. The jury awarded me a nice sum of money. We won the case. Uh, I turned to them and I said, okay, I won the case. Can we now settle it? No, we're going to appeal it. They went the whole distance. It got affirmed on appeal. They ended up paying. Uh, but that's the, that's the answer to whether or not they're likely to settle. Now, if it's not an oral surgical case and it's just a dental case, you have a better shot of possibly not having to litigate. But again, Dentists, oral surgeons, doctors, it's really tough. Uh, Frank also pointed out my error, one year, 90 days. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for the nice compliment. Um, Thomas Hannah's asking if I can talk about the statute of limitations as it pertains to minors. Great question. It's a little different in medical malpractice as opposed to um, negligence cases. In negligence cases, statute of limitations are told for minors until they reach the age of 18. But no, not in medical malpractice cases where the legislature wanted to do everything they could to keep us from filing these cases, shorter time limits, reduced fees, all kinds of stuff. So even in an infant case, it will not toll until 18 years old. It's 10 years max from the date. So if it's a birth injury and they come to you when they're 11 years old, too late. 10 years max from the date of surgery. So it's going to toll 
And if the infant was 15 when it happened, um, you know, though it's to the age of majority or 10 years max. Okay. So you'll have to bring that within the age of majority or 10 years max. So keep an eye out for that. Um, all right. Jesse is asking, is it possible or worthwhile to allege medical malpractice during subsequent treatment as a third party claim? Plaintiff gets injured, sues defendant. Defendant then reveals post-accident was malpractice. Uh, you believe a cause of action a few years ago said yes for pre-accident treatment. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately, you need to focus on whether or not you see there was departures from the standard of care. And if there's an argument that this it, was, it wasn't me, I didn't mess it up. It was the doctor they went to afterwards who messed it up. Then chances are... You're going to need to take a real strong look at that. And if you have an expert who says, yeah, it was the subsequent treating, then I wouldn't do a third party claim. I'd do a direct claim. Uh, if it if you're a defense attorney, I think that's a great tactic. If you feel that your, your client was sued, uh, but it wasn't your client, it was subsequent, you can bring in that doctor. Most likely you won't. I can tell you I've never had, when I'm suing multiple defendants, different law firms, they just, they won't question uh, a co-defendant. They sit quietly. Uh, you'll have to speak to, to lawyers that specialize in defending these cases, but it's like a code. Uh, they don't go against each other, even if it's not their client. So um, you usually don't see a defense firm third party in or implead another doctor. But what they will do is they will bring that up and they will argue to a jury, there's no proof it was us. It could have been that guy. It could have been the one they went to afterwards. So it's sort of an empty chair argument. So that's how you look at that. Uh, Michael's looking for a referral for a Suffolk County plaintiff's med mal firm for a delayed diagnosis lung cancer case. If interested, email Michael Greenfield at Gmail. Um, I can tell you, since Vito was kind enough to chime in, uh, his, he's got a, a big firm and a great practice, and I know his firm handles cases out there. So you may want to reach out to Vito, Michael. Um, all right. Would I recommend TASA or any other groups? Um, TASA is one of these screening companies. Uh, I'm going to push that off until next month when we talk about experts and reviews. The bottom line is there are review services. You have to filter them out. You have to see the price point. You have to see what you get from them. I can tell you that the Academy has two sponsors that will review records, um, the Expert Institute, and they will also find you experts, as well as MedQuest. Um, they can help do a review and they can also help find you experts. Um, so the Academy does have sponsors, uh, but there are, there are lots of uh, places you can go as an intermediary step between hiring an expert specialist and getting uh, a, a review. Um, from perhaps uh, you know a nurse or uh, a screening company. Uh, again, that's not going to be enough to uh, do a certificate of merit, but cost-wise, it can help you and further evaluate your case. We'll talk more about that next month. Is the same charge standard applied to negligence of a physician's assistant or a nurse practitioner? Um, it depends on what they're doing. If the type of work they're doing is in the medical realm uh, and traditionally work done in a hospital, uh, work done by a physician, then it will be medical malpractice. There are instances where it may not be a departure from medical 
uh, standard of care or medical accepted practice, but just regular negligence. Um, like let's say a nurse fails to point out a step and that's why uh, the patient's trips and falls and gets injured. I would argue that's a negligence case, not a medical malpractice case. And it's also going to dictate which retainer you're going to have the client sign. So it's not a clear answer. You're going to have to look into the facts. Also take a look, probably in the charge I put in the materials, there will be something about nurses and physicians assistance. Okay. Um, Matthew Kaufman, hello. Remember different statute limitations for New York state hospitals and the VA. The VA, I didn't talk about. Um, if you bring a case against the VA, uh, which is the veterinary, uh, a veterans uh, uh, administration, um, that's the federal government. And that's going to be under the Tort Claims Act, which is a whole nother beast. I've lectured on it. I think you could find it online. Really scary. Medical malpractice cases are tough enough. Dealing with it in federal court with the pitfalls of the Federal Torts Claims Act is even tougher, so be really wary if it's a VA case, do your homework. Um, all right, Eric is asking, is it two and a half years or a year and 90 days? Two and a half years is a private entity, doctor or hospital, that's the statute of limitations in medical malpractice, a year and 90 days is municipal, okay? Uh, Ann Starr saying, do I mind repeating what a no pay case is? Thank you. You know, I've been doing this so long that I will use abbreviations or phrases that not everybody knows. So I apologize for that. I need to be aware of that. It reminds me of being in front of Judge Rivera in Brooklyn on a labor law case, arguing a motion for summary judgment or against it. And he knew what it is, but I start saying to him, in your honor, they were the GC on the case. And he scorned and scolded me. I don't know what GC is, counsel. Don't presume anything. What is that? Oh, it's general contractor. So no pay is when uh, on any case uh, that you're bringing a claim for compensation, the insurance company and or defense says, we're not off, we're not settling. This is a no pay case. We are not offering a dollar. And we will see that happen in medical malpractice cases. Sometimes there is a policy that will cover a physician. And for a higher premium, a physician can request a clause in their insurance for medical malpractice that gives them the authority to settle or not. Whereas even if the insurance company um, wants to settle, uh, if the doctor says no, uh, then they can't settle the case. So those are often, I'll bring a case against a, a, a doctor and the counsel will say, listen, you know, he, it's, he's taken a position, she's taken a position of no pay. They're not consenting to settlement. So we're going to have to try the case. Now, there's some end arounds and things the insurance company can do. It's not easy. Um, but I can tell you in the dental case that I had to try in New Jersey that they took a no pay on, it was the reverse. The doctor, he was a young oral surgeon who messed up. He wanted to settle the case and his insurance company wouldn't settle it. How do you like that? Imagine being sued and telling your insurance company to settle the case and they don't. Uh, and they don't listen, and then you get hit with a public verdict. Okay. Um, do I include negligent hiring claims with med mal cases? And have I had success with those? Amy's asking. I don't believe I have. Um, you know, usually you're dealing with a physician, and a physician, if they have gone to medical school and they pass their boards and they have a medical license, it's kind of hard to argue 
um, negligent hiring. So if there's really unique fact pattern, maybe you're suing a hospital and they um, and there was something that happened where a nurse or physician's assistant, which we call PA, a PA um, did something improper that caused an injury. And you want to say that they didn't train that nurse or hospital when uh, that nurse or PA, uh, when the hospital should have done that, uh, should have trained them, then I would put that in. So it's going to be fact specific. Um, Carla, thank you uh, for the nice compliment. Um, just a nice compliment, not a question. Thank you so much. I will keep up the good fight, Carla. Thank you. All right. Kevin is asking um, my discussion regarding the existence of malpractice, but a lack of damages. What value of any would I put on a young child undergoing an unnecessary laparoscopic surgery after a misdiagnosis by a radiologist on a CT scan? Although he's not suffering now, does the fact that the child had to undergo this medically unnecessary procedure under anesthesia count for something? The answer is yes. So any surgery that you wouldn't have to undergo otherwise, if you have to undergo it for whatever reason, and you can prove you wouldn't have had to have that surgery, but for malpractice, there's value to that. Surgeries are scary. Surgeries uh, are traumatic. There's risks. There's anesthesia. You're putting it in your body. Uh, you're getting your body operated on foreign objects in there. So there's definitely value. So it's gonna that's gonna go into loss of enjoyment of life, conscious pain and suffering. Uh, for that time period, it's gonna be tight. Uh, your damages aren't gonna extend far. They may not be huge, but there's definitely value uh, to that case. Any case, you're always looking, well, would they have had to have that surgery anyway? Um, and if the answer is no, the only reason they needed that subsequent surgery was as a result of this malpractice or any surgery from malpractice, otherwise they really didn't need it, that definitely has value there. Okay, um, Amy's asking for me to follow up if the nurse doesn't uh, tell them uh, about the step and they step, is that going to be considered med mal even if it would normally sound in negligence? I would argue that is negligence. It's simple negligence that you don't even need an expert. And that's why it's not medical malpractice. You see a step, you're supposed to warn somebody of a step. So again, other people may think differently. Chime in if you think that is a medical malpractice cause of action. My opinion, that's negligence. I may be right, I may be wrong. All right, thank you, Victor. Daniel, um, most consent policies have a hammer clause. We've heard of that. Some of you may have heard that there's this thing called a hammer clause. It permits them to notify the doctor the case can be settled within the limits and that the doctor refuses to consent. The carrier is not going to be responsible for a verdict over the settlement and the doctor will be responsible for the cost of the defense. So that's kind of a reverse of what many of you may have heard of as bad faith. As plaintiff's lawyers, we can send a letter of bad faith if we think an insurance carrier should be settling the case for the policy limits and they are, they have no justification for not doing so. Uh, and then if they get hit with a verdict afterwards and you can prove that they did act in bad faith, they have to pay out of their pocket for any sums awarded in addition. So this is kind of a similar situation. The hammer clause is in essence, the insurance company bad faithing the doctor saying, listen, this case needs to be settled. We can settle it in your limits. You're being obstinate. You're making us pay trial costs. You're exposing us to a bigger judgment. You're going to have to pay it. So it depends on the policy. And this, folks, gets into 
have a good rapport with your adversary. If you followed me at all, um, if you pick up my book, uh, there it is right there, which just got launched. It's on Amazon. It's based on the series you may have attended that I did two years ago on how to successfully litigate a personal injury case. I always talk about the importance of having a good rapport with each other. Just because we're on the other side of the V doesn't mean that we have to be adverse and difficult. So I love to give a call up to uh, defense counsel uh, for uh for my, you know, on my med mal cases and I speak with them and I say, listen, is consent an issue here? Um, do you feel comfortable sharing that with me? And sometimes they will. They'll be like, I don't think consent's an issue, but I think the carrier doesn't think you've got a case. Or they may say, we may be able to do something. Consent might be an issue, but we're working on it. You can say, is there a hammer clause? Um, you're also entitled to get a copy of the policy. So in any litigation, you are entitled to request not just the amounts of coverage, but the actual policies. So get those policies that apply to these doctors. Look, look and see if there's a hammer clause. Look and see if there's a, uh, the ability to uh, take a no pay stance. Get the policies on these cases. Don't ever be satisfied with just an amount of coverage because that's what you're usually gonna get, excuse me, in a response to your demand for insurance coverage, they're going to tell you the policy, the company, and the uh, umbrella and excess coverage. They're not going to give you the policy unless you push further. Say, thank you for giving me the coverage. I want the policy. Why do you need the policy? We gave it to you. Because I'm entitled to it under statute. Look it up in the CPLR. Um, you're entitled to the policies. So get them and read them. That will help you because then you could have a rapport uh, if you've developed an appropriate rapport with counsel for uh, the defendants, you can find out what's going on behind the scenes. It's helpful to know if you got a shot at settlement or if this one's going all the way. I'm going to wrap it up. I think I covered pretty much everything. As always, email me, book a one-on-one -on -one Zoom with me. Just go to the Mentor ESQ. I've done it with over 150 lawyers now, complimentary half hour. We could get to know each other, talk about cases. Listen to my podcast. If you're listening now, thank you. Make sure to leave a review. And my last pitch is um, my book. Uh, I am currently number one new release in personal injury law on Amazon. And if you buy the book, all proceeds go to charity, to my charitable causes. So you can do Kindle, paperback, hardback. And, uh, and, I, and I just want to let you know about that. You'll be hearing more about that as we go ahead. Have a great uh, new year. And I'll see you all hopefully next month.